0: This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Bella Catering, one of Sydney's very best catering companies run by Glenn and Maria and their team. Glenn is a degenerate, but their entire team is absolutely incredible. Great food, great reasonable prices, great delivery all around Greater Sydney. So do yourselves a favor. Don't cook order some food from bellacatering.com.au. They are going to be a company that has the staying power to survive past COVID-19, but with your help. So if you can, bellacatering.com.au, you can check them out. They are definitely friends of the show and of this series and of all One Heat Minute Productions. And we're very proud that they jumped on as a sponsor to All the President's Minutes. We're happy to point people in their direction. We love them dearly. So if you guys have got a few, uh, a few extra bucks and you don't want to cook, really, who the hell wants to cook right now? Um, I mean, you're just looking at that number in Victoria of coronavirus patients go up and up thinking about things shutting down order some catering cater for the remaining family you can get to your house in sydney right now thank you so much for listening here's the show i'm telling you your agents in that office are acting improperly now who are they trying to protect
1: Let me tell you something. Look, 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 you're talking about two agents in a regional office
0: in Louisville. I got the goddamn Unabomber threatening to blow up LAX. I got to move. I got to move 45 agents from all over the country into L.A. All right. When I get a chance, I'll give it a look. You better take a good look because I'm getting two things pissed off and curious. Now,
1: any of these guys been uh, offered jobs in corporate security after they retire?
0: Either one of those guys got ex-agent pals already in those jobs. Like for instance, their ex-supervisor who's already at Brown and Williamson as we fucking speak.
1: I'll give it a look.
0: You're getting my drift. I'll give it a look. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All The President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me for the 74th minute in Robert Redford and Alan Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, is a person who strong-armed their way onto this show. Now, that's okay. That's the beauty of this podcast and the beauty of any one heat minute production is that we find similarly obsessed people with the movie, with what we're talking about, and it's it becomes like a beacon to find them. And I couldn't be happier with just the insanely great group of people that have, now talked about more than half of this movie. And today is no different. I have another Pulitzer Prize nominee, this time working at the Chico Enterprise Record in 2019. I have half of I, I went down a rabbit hole of uh of drunk Austin, which is drunk Jane Austen on Twitter, which is just a delight. Now these are two firstly the Pulitzer Prize She'd be very proud of it, I would assume. But the drunk Austin, she's now putting her head in her hands, like, I can't believe he's mentioning that. But it actually is a joy because Twitter occasionally can be a cesspool. A producer of the Inhale podcast series, um, which was also part of the Chico Enterprise record after the North California fires, a limited series. And finally, the editor of the Mendocino Beacon and the Fort Bragg Advocate, Robin Epley. Welcome to All the President's Minutes.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That was very thorough. <laughs> I try. I try. I mean, look, I've been strong-armed. I need to make sure I'm on my game for this. Why, why are you obsessed with this movie? Apart from the obvious that you're a passionate and talented journalist? Oh,
1: that's a lot of adjectives. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I've been wondering that. Get,
0: get rid of those adjectives, please. Uh, if you're going to give me this copy, I want it clean. I want all these adjectives I, gone.
1: Yeah, as, a, as an editor now, I have to think about these things. Um, no, I've been thinking about that ever since, like you said, I, I strong-earned my way onto your podcast. Thank you. Um, and I, I think it's because you would be hard-pressed to find an American journalist that is not aware of this movie at the very least. Yes. And um, this movie... I think is the catalyst for a lot of journalists, and maybe not so many journalists because I'm only thirty. Yes. So I was not alive during Watergate. Yes. I wasn't even alive when it was out. Um, but I think that this movie is part of the institutional memory of a lot of journalists, no matter their age. And I think, um, I think it just really spurred me to want to be like that, and it—it's not the sole reason I'm a journalist, but it is definitely a reason.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, I think when I watched this movie, I, I like you. I would call myself broadly a freelance entertainment journalist. I'm not like boots on the ground um, stuff before I was doing podcasts, but I think that the approach, the—I don't know, like the the purpose of the pursuit of actually doing something and trying and consistently failing and absolutely having to be okay with that and just endlessly putting your head down and working your ass off and not really necessarily getting the plaudits and the pats on the back that you could ever want for it, but part of the satisfaction that you must find in whatever you're doing is the actual doing of the work. That is what resonates, I think, more elementally for me. Uh, is like, I, I think about that and I'm like, these guys are just, it's every day doing it. You know, um, I've, I've got, you know, boxing is, uh, in my family and the, there's a, a, a term that people use in boxing a lot. I don't know if I've mentioned it on the show yet. I definitely maybe talked about it in one hit minute at times, which is, um, like uh, traditional boxing trainers just talk about road work. And it's like, you see it in lots of movies, you see it in Rocky, even you get up in the dark you go for like a nine to 10 K run, you know, which is, you know, five, six mile run in the morning when no one else is awake. And it is the most thankless, boring. Every single day you were to get up and just do it. And it's like, there is something about that road work when you buy yourself and that, and you just, and there's no one around. Like it's, it's not, none of the spotlight, none of the interviews, none of anything, but that road work is paying you dividends not only the rest of your career but for like that impending fight for your mindset everything there's just that thankless thing and i see these guys plowing away on those beautiful old typewriters and i'm just like that's their road work like every day they just got to put it in and they've just got to keep mounting this case and then even when you know we get to the the climactic moments of this movie they're still typing because it's not over it doesn't end it doesn't actually end
1: yeah, I think I would compare that in journalism, that roadwork, um, to just a day-in, day-out grind of, of working on a newspaper, um, and I think especially on a daily newspaper, uh, when you're maybe one of a handful of reporters, because um, there's just not that many people left in newsrooms anymore, um, and this is pre-coronavirus, uh, <laughs> because there's not a lot of together anymore right now at all. Um, the, the road work that you're doing is when you're starting out, you're doing police logs and uh, the, the grunt work that nobody else really wants to do. And it's so boring and it's, it's almost painful and you don't understand why and like it just feels like filler content. But what you're actually doing, like you said, is you're, you're putting in the time and you're putting in the effort and you're building those skills um, to do the later work. And I don't think that you can appreciate the sort of grind uh, that comes with being a daily newspaper reporter until you have put in some of that what we would call like news clerk work, um, which is filing things and talking to people and fact checking and copy editing and that's the exciting bit. The less exciting parts are, you know, just listening to voicemail. I used to do this in college at at the chico enterprise record where i worked when i worked there in college um and i i literally would one of my jobs was to listen to crazy voicemails that came <laughs> in we called them called tell it to the er and um they they just would leave absolutely nutty phone messages most of the time every once in a while you get a good one but it's basically like audible letters to the editor and I would have to transcribe them, and it was I hated doing it. So I found fun things about it, and one of my favorite things was this gentleman who would call up, and gentleman is a stretch of a word, uh, <laughs> who, who would call up and complain about Sarah Palin, which is dating when I was there, um, and how she was getting in her helicopter and shooting wolves, not wolves, wolf is how he would say it, <laughs> you know, s on the end and i just i look forward to that phone call every week because it was just so far out there that it made me laugh and it made the whole thing work. but like you said it's that road work of the grind and the things that people don't see and the little pieces of daily journalism that don't win Pulitzer's but mean so much to the community that you're serving um, and i don't think you can be a good journalist until you until you do that road work
0: yeah it's um... Yeah, t- talking to you, it reminds me of my, one of my best friends, Maria Lewis, who's been on the show a couple of times, and she talks about those, you know, she got a, a first journalism job on the Gold Coast Bulletin, which is in Queensland and Australia and st- uh, one of our northern states, and uh, and she had that thankless, like, crime beat, clerk sort of stuff when she went in there, and she was doing the, you know, the police beat reporting, and that's when it got exciting, but still very thankless and death knocks as you would probably know about you know those sorts of things you just start out and it's like you are doing crappy stuff interviewing people in parks around crime scenes trying to do things it's like all this stuff that seems so thankless now but you put that grind in and then you really know you've got all the tools in your kit for something that breaks whether it's not only a story that can infect uh, and i love that you said like finally we're getting to talk about like the community that you serve. Cause I think with these guys, they're starting out first and foremost to serve the community in Washington, DC, like their community of people who are surrounding the politi- international political machine. Um, and they start out there, but it's like y- a story that can impact not only the community you serve, but then has like ramifications into national, international politics, basically um, that stumbles upon your lap, which is a uh, pretty crazy. So do
1: you watch Yeah, I think
0: Can I ask go you ahead. Can I, quick question? How how often do you go back to all the president's men? And in 2020 has it been something that you've gone back to regularly? Like what what are we talking
1: here, Robin? You know, actually, I think this might have been the first time I've watched it in 2020. Um and it, I I love journalism movies in general. Um I one of my favorite movies is His Girl Friday, which is yes. kind of like a com- Journalism romp in the 30s. Yes. Um, God, I've and I mean, that.
0: yeah, that's great. That's a great
1: movie. It's so good, so good. Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant, and it's it's fantastic. Um, and I think it's on it's on Netflix US at least. I think. Um, anyway, I, I like watching journalism movies um, because it makes me <laughs> it makes me feel better at the end of a topic. <laughs> Gives you that that Hollywood spin on on what you got into the industry for, um, and one of the things I like the most about all of presidents men is that for a, a kid seeing that and to let that guide some of my career, like um, like I said, I is one of the reasons one of the reasons why I got into journalism. Yeah. It's such an accurate representation of what journalism is. Like you see the grind, you see the roadwork, you see the mistakes and the red herrings, and the, you know, uh, I think you're with saying.
0: Literal red hair, as like only two <laughs> minutes ago for people listening to the show, a literal red herring in the movie. Um,
1: yeah. You see them, like, i you also mentioned in an earlier podcast, too, I was just listening to where uh, Woodward gets, I think it's Dahlberg on the phone, and he just closes his eyes and prays to God because uh, he says, I should be telling you this. And it's like, Every journalist has been there. Every journalist is just like, please God, please don't think twice about what you're about to say. Like, just say <laughs> it. Just and we've all
0: been. It's an exultant moment to hear those words. I don't know if I should be telling you this. And he closes. His eyes. It's like it's the most. Yeah. It's so authentic. Like in even in and I said this a couple of times. Like even in an entertainment journalist career, when someone says, "I've never told this before," it's almost the equivalent of us. It's like. <gasps> Oh my God, please. For the love of God. Yeah.
1: You're not a game that like you desperately want to hear what they have to say now. Yeah. And you're just like, Oh God, please don't mess us up. Please don't mess us up. Um, is my recording yeah, equipment
0: on is another massive
1: one. Frank, you know, frantically scribbling what they're saying. Uh, hoping you can read your own handwriting afterwards. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think all the president's men is such a, good example of what real life journalism is. Um, But it's also got that like upbeat, sort of changing the world feel that I think a lot of journalists got into the industry for. So I haven't watched it in 2020, but maybe I should have. Maybe I should have (laughs) before now. A little less (laughs) (laughs) surprised.
0: Well, it's, that, I think that that's one thing that I've wrestled with so much is when I started this project, or when I even conceived of the project um, as a continuation of what we do here at One Heat Minute Productions. I, I, I saw it as such a direct corollary to you know contemporary cl- political climates and attacks on journalists and sort of like you know political entities battening down the hatches, so to speak. You know because there's been some. Uh, there's been some large-scale political fuckery, shall we say, is probably the best way to describe it. And there's and and there's people doing it. But what what has happened in 2020, 2020 is like is making things that feel felt authentic and felt real and felt hopeful and felt it makes it feel like fantasy land. It makes me feel like I'm watching the never-ending story over and over again. Because it's just like 2020 is the paradigms are shifting under our feet and it's like i don't know if i think i don't know if we're all gonna completely appreciate the amount of change and just you know philosophical change ethical change moral change that is like all like turbulent happening underneath us right now because it it doesn't it certainly doesn't feel like you can really get a handle on it it's i was writing down the date that we're recording so it's only a couple of days before you guys are going to hear it but like robin and i are talking on like the 20 well in my in, in Sydney, it's the twenty eighth of July. It's the twenty seventh in the states, and I'm just like, man, it was only a minute ago in March where I stopped working in the office every day. Like now, I'm at home every day, and I'm sure that Robin feels the same thing. It doesn't feel like God. I'm now I see these newsroom scenes even for a flash, and I'm yearning to go and have inane conversation and get a coffee with a colleague. It's 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 insane.
1: Yeah, I um, <clears throat> for better or for worse. I got this job about two weeks before the US shut down. Wow. Um, I moved from Chico where I was a politics reporter. Um, I was like the senior city politics reporter. Um, and it was the first time I would really had uh, that kind of job, honestly. Uh, I hadn't worked at a daily paper since college. I had done some politics, but mostly my background was actually in like radio and magazines. Um, and I got the job in Chico, uh, after the campfire, which was the big, uh, really devastating fire that was caused here in, uh, November of 2018, uh, that killed like 86 people. Um, anyway, so I got the job after that. We were the closest local newspaper to the disaster. We obviously finalized for the Pulitzer, like you mentioned, and I had a really great, uh, about 14 months there. And then this job became available here in Fort Bragg, which is a couple hundred miles to the west. It's right on the ocean. Um, The editorship became available, and I offhandedly made a joke to my boss that I would love that job, and I had it four days later. Um, (laughs) That owns both those papers. Owns like it's the same mothership. Yeah. Um, And so I moved in really fast. I had all of. I've counted it. I had 10 days in the office with a full staff. And by full staff, I mean I had a part-time reporter and me. And then coronavirus hit. I was still getting used to the job. I had maybe put out two or three papers at that point. Um, And all of a sudden, I was working from home. They furloughed my only reporter. They furloughed another member of my staff. Uh, I haven't really been back in the office except to grab copies of the paper. Um, It's Really been not the job I signed up for, uh, but it's such an important time for local journalism that I think um, sometimes I have to just put my own like fears and uh, emotional upset on hold uh, because we're all going through it right now, right? Like we're all worried about the virus, all worried about Trump, we're all worried about you know global fascism and and (laughs) everything. Civil rights movement in America. And it's sometimes you just have to focus on the job. So it's it's been a blessing and a curse sometimes. Um, but I'm thankful. That it's a Really beautiful part of California here on the, the coast, and I just go out and sit next to the ocean sometimes.
0: No, nothing like it. Nothing like being able to just get that get get some air, get out of the house, get near an ocean. Um, I think. Yeah. I think that uh, you know, in Oz we've been really lucky. Uh, as far as the handling of the virus in in most of our states has been pretty good but it's now there's it's it's now lingering you know uh, in my state in New South Wales it's lingering around and there's little pop-ups and there's still numbers that aren't you know that that are restricting us from opening up as much as we would like and to be able to relish those things like going away and being near the ocean or just taking drives and not not worrying about being around a stack of people um but yeah it's it's um you know there's There's something, there's something about it that at least you're there. At least you're there. This might be some of the most important work I think that any of us do, Um, but I think we might reflect on it later. Um, And all the people, I've spoken to a stack of journalists who are just like in it. I I don't think anyone's going to realize it until after, you know, that hindsight's going to be the 2020 vision really um, for this. The
1: 2020 vision. Yeah. Um, No, it's, I I think it's in the back of everybody's heads that we recognize how important journalism is right now to this moment and not just because of the virus, but because of everything going on. Mm. Um, But it's so hard to remember that. It's so hard to feel like Woodward and Bernstein doing really important work, really like the work that people are going to remember and it matters and people are talking about 50 years after the fact when you're in the slog of it. Like, and I don't think, not to bring this around full circle again, but I don't think Woodward and Bernstein were doing this because they thought they were gonna win the Pulitzer or because they thought they were gonna have a movie about them. They were doing it because it was an important story to be told. And I think what the movie so accurately captures is that feeling of frustration when the story isn't going the way that they want it to go. When you know, Deep Throat is being really cagey, and he's like, "Just tell me, tell me what you know. I need to know so that this can move forward and <laughs> justice can be done." Or, or when they get in the, you know, it's sort of played for comedic effect when they get to that lady's house and she's like, "Oh, I'm not the the person that you are looking for." But like those moments that happens in journalism, and it's like you just pick up the pieces and you start over again, or you get back on the horse because at the end of the day the story should be what's most important but that can be that can be damaging when you get hit over and over and over again um and not a lot of journalists can pick up and keep going and i think that's what's so admirable about Woodward and Bernstein
0: yeah it's it's and that's the other thing that i love as a uh as as a person who's written before and and published and stuff like that i think um, I, I just love that their editors are ball busters, in, in to a certain extent. Um, as in, you know, they're they're constantly on them about the quality of the story and the level of their work and the necessity for that tireless pursuit. And they value the hunger, they value the work ethic almost more than the story turning over. Um, it's only when the story starts to take, starts to grow in scope and have bigger ramifications that they get more urgent on like breaking new elements of the story so that they can validate the investment but i i also love that you know these guys probably would have turned back if they didn't have people in their ears going keep going keep going keep going get me more find me more and i know that that is a very true that's a like it's like a truism of an editor yeah cool what else you (laughs) like what else you got you could probably attest to that yeah sure what else you got like it's like you the, the person coming to you feels like they've got the, the mothership, and, the, and you're like, mm, yeah, cool. What else you got? What else you got? Um, I, th- I think that there's that, that is so good. It's like, I, I can, I can feel comfort in like, just tell me that I don't have it if I don't have it and that I need to work hard.
1: Yeah. I just had to do this to somebody the other day and I felt so bad about it, but uh, I'm working with a new freelancer here and Obviously, community, local journalism is not anywhere on the same scale as the Washington Post, but um, this local freelancer had pitched me a story, and I understood it to be, you know, a certain way, and when it came in, it was not what I thought the story was going to be about, Um, which is, it happened, Um, and I felt really bad, but I had to call up my freelancer and be like, I know this is your first story for me, but... I need you to talk to this person. I need you to cut this section out. I like the way that you wrote this, but this needs to be tweaked. Um, and then come back to me in a week, and we'll look at it again. Um, and I, if I had been that freelancer and I was a young woman, um, you know, and this was my first time working for somebody, like, it's really hard to get yeah. that criticism. It's hard to hand over something that you've written, that you've put your heart into, that you're really excited about. You feel like you've gotten to a place where you can finally show your editor, and your editor goes, "No," <laughs> <laughs> um, and that that takes a lot of bravery too. And I think that that's something that they don't they don't really teach you in journalism school. They don't like teach you how to. Um, Handle those red marks on the page you kind of just either have an innate sense of how to keep going or you know You you crumble and you uh, go somewhere else Uh, but (laughs) I used to say that the freelancer handed it very well (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that's also that's that's the trick when you're an editor too, right is that usually if you're an editor You've been a reporter so you understand Where this person is coming from like you've got that? background, that institutional knowledge of having been the person in that situation getting the criticism. Um, But your job as an editor is to try to make it as best as it can be. And so not only do you have like the style book in your head, you have sort of a vision of what you want in the paper, hopefully if you're a good editor, Um, but you're also Playing the role of the audience, you need to be able to separate yourself from the journalism side and look at it the way that the audience is going to look at it, and um, almost be like Dustin Hoffman in that scene where he takes, uh, you know, Robert Redford's story, or I should say, Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah. You know, he Bernstein takes Woodward's story out of the pile and goes and edits it and brings it back, and was like. You know you're new, and you've got this information down here, and it should be up here. And if you think yours is better, go ahead and submit it. And I laugh because, first of all, that's such a dick move. Like you don't, <laughs> you're like an editor, you don't do that. Like, and that's that's why Woodward is all like, I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did it because I think if, if Bernstein had come to him and said, "Hey, I want to work on this story with you," uh, but you know you're new to journalism and there's some stuff you need to move around. Like I think Woodward probably would have been more accepting of that, but Bernstein, that's such a great character moment where he just takes it and does it. And it's like, okay, like calm down. But that's, that's the editor vibe, right? Is that you move pieces around, you make it more clear for the audience and a good editor can kind of like go out of their own body and look at it from the way that the audience is going to see it and be like, we need this information up front. This is what the story needs to be about. Or you just don't have enough information yet. Go back, get some luck.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. Go back and get something. I, I thought of two things the other day. I, I reminisced about, I wrote this big, long 20th anniversary celebration of a movie I really loved for a, for a piece. That I came back and uh, it was just, it was more of like a celebration thing. And my editor at the time came back and like, suggested a whole bunch of changes just because of he knew what the beats were for the audience for the rest of the articles that they read. And so then what I ended up turning in, which is fine, like I'm proud of what was turned in, but I'm like, it, it was gutted from what I had the intention to be, but it just probably wasn't right for that publication, which is fine. You have to get over it. Like you're like, okay, like that's, it is what it is. But I remember at the time, like your first inclination is this like gutted feeling like, Oh my God, that's so gutted. When I read it again, I regret that I didn't pitch it somewhere else as its whole thing like as it what it what I had intended because that would have been something else um entirely. So uh there's that. And I just remembered I was doing my honours thesis at university and I remember I got a few weeks out from actually submitting it <clears throat> and uh I gave it to my supervisor and we've been working on it and we got to a point and he just like he 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 did like like the ruthless. I actually now can reflect. Like he ruthlessly did a Ben Bradley. He's like you don't have it. Like this is not this is not nearly the quality of what I know that you can deliver. Like based on everything that you've kind of submitted or the bits and pieces we put together, doesn't work. Needs more clarity. Needs a holistic thing. You need to put more analysis. You need to show more of who you are. Like it's not enough. You and da da da. And it's like you know at this state at this rate you're not gonna you're not gonna. It's not worth submitting basically. And oh my god, that was like a the biggest gut punch. The worst car ride back home from university. I was like oh this is just the worst. And then I was like devastated, had a vent. Some of my friends did the supporting thing like, man, that sucks. You know, he should have helped you more or whatever. And at the time I was like, like at the time I, I, I don't know whether it's just like a bit more of my, I would consider now my me wisdom of now was like, no, he's right. I've got to go and do some work. And so I did, and I pulled out all stops and I did really well. And, but I think that there's that, I think that turning point moment happens with everyone. And you either find it in yourself to be the person that can just go, no, they're Right. Like they're, that person is right, <laughs> so if you can if you can accept that they are right about that for that for the audience that you're pitching it to or for the publication or whatever, like if you can accept that they're right and move on, I think that that's a huge that is it that's a skill in and of itself. Like to have to, to to manage your ego in that moment to go no, the right thing to do is to do what they're they're asking me to do here.
1: The other thing I love about those scenes, and it's not even the scene you assigned me, but I love it, uh, is. Bradley, I'm not sure if this plays across well to non-journalists, um, but Bradley is like those guys' boss's boss's boss. Yes. Like Bradley coming to sit down at their their little desk area, if you watch Woodward and Bernstein in the background, like they both kind of like sit up a little bit straighter and they like look at each other and they're like, oh my God, like Bradley's here. Um, and I don't think unless you know the hierarchy of a newsroom that that doesn't make much sense because later scenes show them going in to talk directly to Bradley, which makes sense if they're working on a huge national story. But at the beginning, like it's really kind of nerve wracking to have the bosses of the bosses the boss there. Yes, um,
0: I, I think. But the other thing I really, I think, oh, just just to touch on that because I think it's a great point. Um, there was. I think when you watch this the first time, if you're not a journo, you, there is no way that you can understand the the hierarchy. But I think what no. is what plays so well in this movie is the more you watch it, the more you get the details. Like one of my favorite scenes is around the 60th minute where Bradley says his infamous line. It's like, where's the goddamn story? When he's angry at their lack of progress, he doesn't get angry at the boys. He looks over... <laughs> He looks over to the to the metro editor and goes, "What the hell is going on? Like, what is go-? like? He does the hierarchy is is in the way that he's interacting with them because at the beginning it's with Jack Warden character of like they don't have it, they don't have it, um, and they just shut up and then and then Jack Warden's going to argue with Bradley like, oh, da da, da what's what's happening here? Howard's going off to argue with Bradley about." I thought they had it better and then he's going to get it. his butt handed to him by Bradley going, no, you didn't have it. They didn't have it. It shouldn't have wasted my time coming out of the office to read it basically. Um, so I think what starts to happen is it's, it's this movie's great, like show not tell move of like, we're going to show you the hierarchy. You don't need to see an organization chart. You don't need to have badges on their shoulders like they're in the military, but the way that everyone is reverential to him and his place is so like, well articulated and so for me like I come in as not the expert who's worked in a newsroom like you and it's it's cool to be like yeah he's like an executive editor like all those guys are underlings like it's like the big boss coming out to tinker with the story on the floor is a big deal it's a big deal
1: yeah and I think uh, first of all the show not tell thing it's such a hard and fast rule in journalism but I love that it's part of the film they don't take the easy way out to sort of move the story along. I don't there's no like real exposition. I mean there is obviously exposition, but like there's no like identifiable exposition. Whereas I think in a lot of movies, like like, okay, let's just get to the explanation part where we can move on to the actual plot now. Like, thank you, you've established things. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention too was that the other job of an editor, and I think I, I think you'll find editors who take this very seriously, and those are the good ones, um, is to shield the reporters. The reporters are the ones out there, you know, boots on the ground, getting the story, doing the work, putting in the road work, like you said. The editors, while their job may be to be the hard ass, the ball busters, it's also to kind of protect our our people so that they can do their jobs, like we take the Um, And and that's why I love, there's sort of a scene earlier on in the movie, I don't remember exactly when it is, where their Metro editor, Jack Warden, goes, not only does he fight to keep the guys on the story instead of handing it to somebody else, he's like, these guys have been, you know, busting their ass on this story, like they're hungry for it, keep them on it. Um, And that's where it comes in handy to have editors who were former reporters, because like, you know, that feeling and like you, it just would suck to get taken off that story. Um, so they get kept on, but then later on, when Ben Bradley is the one taking the heat from like the national press, like why you, you even hear uh, of one of the fellow editors being like, it doesn't bug me so much that the White House is denying everything that we're saying, it bugs <laughs> me that no other newspaper is running our stuff. Like, what, why are we doing this? Where did we get the high ground on morality when it comes to the president? And Ben Bradley is like, fuck it, we stand by the boys. Like, we stand by them. <laughs> we stand by them. Here's, here, and that's a good, here, here, that's a good he''s
0: Here's my, here's my, here's my statement. Here's my statement to run in the paper. We stand by our story.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that is, that I think it's so, I think as a reporter, you identify with Woodward and Bernstein, but now like as an editor, like to hear Bradley say that, I just want to cheer. I just want to <laughs> be like, yes. Stand by your reporter. Stand by your man. <laughs> like, because you know a good journalist, if you surround yourself with a team of good journalists as an editor, like, you should have no hesitation in saying that. But that's hard to do, right? Like, we use actual sort of suspicion. Like, you're not a good editor unless you have some sort of suspicion. But then also, I think there's a lot of, um, you, you want to make sure you get it right, but you also want to be first. But you also, like, The consequences to getting it wrong, although in 2020, this is debatable, are are severe. (laughs) Um, When Brassie says, you know, we stand by our our story, like it's just, it's like the stand up and and salute the flag moment for me, you know?
0: Well, let's stand up and salute the assigned minute that I've given you today. Because I think we're, we're, we're having such a rollicking combo and I want to tease out some more detail there. Guys, if you're playing along at home and some of you I know are obsessives, Robin and I are about to talk about the 74th minute, which on the dial of your screen is one hour and 13 minutes on the dial. And thankfully, unlike Heat, there are no multiple versions of All the President's Men. It is one version. So you should be watching the same thing that we're about to be watching. We're going to watch it together now. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. enthusiasm, your idealism, your hard work. This is your first vote, and years from now, I just hope you can all look back
1: and say it was one of your best votes. Thank you. There it is. Right before he knocks on the door.
0: Ugh. <laughs> I want to say this. I, I've been looking, I have, you know, uh, as this is the boring part of this process is I have a big schedule and a spreadsheet where I map out the number of episodes that are going to be in the show, prospective names, filling them out. And literally we are, you know, this is 137 minute film or 138 minutes, but 137 of pre-credit minutes that are there. Um, There's only a couple of minutes of credits in this movie. They're they're quite short, but we have just eclipsed like we're minutes away from the halfway point of this movie. And just like the ending spoilers, archival footage of Richard (laughs) Nixon having a victory and Woodward or Bernstein and Woodward and Bernstein, thanklessly plugging away on typewriters to his victorious stuff and a teletype happening echoes like it it underscores the ending of the movie and watching this minute robin preparing for you i was just watching it and i'm going if this isn't just a beautiful foreshadowing of like we are literally at the midway point of this movie and 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 pakula the whole way through is sort of showing you the way that he is going to execute this movie This is like, this is a complete echo right in the middle of the movie that says, this is how we're going to end it. But the satisfaction of us being in those shoes and reading that teletype now just shows that we're criticizing a GAO report. But what are we really, the question is like, what are we really doing? Are we making any progress? Are these all these balloons and all these emphatic people cheering on Richard Nixon and having him doing this huge filibuster speech? Like none of it makes us feel good. But what is so beautiful is that when you watch this moment, not in isolation, but in the context of the whole movie, and you go, God damn it, it is such a beautiful piece of foreshadowing because in the at the end, they're still doing the thing. But right then at the end of the movie, as that teletype is rolling, although they might have looked like there were victories, they're holding it to account. It is just a it's a it's a fantastic minute. I love the use of archival footage. I love seeing Redford as Woodward type on the typewriter. And I love, and I'm sorry, the heartbreak, I know. It is a heartbreak um, of getting you to the incredible bookkeeper's house right now, which is the, I don't know, the, the centerpiece of this whole shebang. Um, but getting you to there, to right there, and, and, and Bernstein hovering outside in the dark at her house, waiting to knock on the door, is where we're at. Um, yeah.
1: So I think my first impression of this scene was it, it made me laugh. Um, because every journalist, uh, kind of knows that feeling of, um, sitting in the office while something major happens on the TV and you're busting your ass trying to get a story out either about what's happening or something that, you know, is tangential to it. I mean, I, what, what he's writing in that scene is, um, the governmental uh affairs uh you know audit of uh those campaign funds. And it I think back in like minute sixty uh they were talking uh about like, oh this audit, like this audit is gonna show like, you know, they can't keep this quiet anymore because it's out of the White House, it's into a legislative affairs, like they're gonna, you know, do something. And I actually like I have it put up on my screen right here. I'll show you. Um, I oh, found wow. Story that he was writing in a uh, 1972 Courier Journal from Louisville, Kentucky, and I pulled it, in. Um, and it's really fascinating. Um, and it's not one of the ones that was included where Pulitzer Prize packet, um, because I don't, I don't know if people know this. When you, when you win a Pulitzer Prize, usually for reporting, it's a packet of uh, stories. It's not just. It's not a single uh, story. One story, usually.
0: And for for criticism too, it's a, it's a body of work. Like you usually have five to six critical pieces throughout a year that, that win inevitably win the Pulitzer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this was not included in the uh, Pulitzer Prize pack that they won for, but it's really interesting because uh, like you said earlier, it kind of shows and doesn't tell that the fact that the GAO audit was withheld until after Nixon had won the renomination, on the word of Sands, who um, I forget exactly who Sands is. Head of uh, finance for Nixon. Yeah, he's the head, of the chief Republican fundraiser. He made a call and said, hold the audit. Like, that was like, what are you doing? Why is the executive branch interfering with the legislative branch? And moreover, it's super suspicious that you would hold the. <laughs> audit that is supposed to call you out, like, yeah. until after the renomination, They were worried about losing the delegate vote, clearly. Um, and so it's sort of it's, it's like the road work. It's not included in the PO surprise packet, but it's the road work of them saying, like, these things are happening, and they're happening weeks, days, months apart, even, um, and you kind of need to follow the story. You need to keep following the reporting. You need to keep on that beat. Um, this is happening, and now this is happening. And I think the really interesting thing, like on surface level of that scene, um, it made me laugh because we've all been there. We've all been sort of that witness to history that can't can't be in the moment because we're translating the moment, yes. right? Ah, sorry, my friend tried to call in. <laughs> 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 uh, mute everything, there we go, okay. <laughs> um, this is the problem with doing Skype on my phone, um, but what was I saying? Um, so yeah, over, you overall, the,
0: you like said, you can't be in the moment, witness to the moment. Yeah,
1: you can't be in the moment because you're translating the moment. But on the undercurrent surface of the scene, like it's a really important sort of um, people were waiting for this report to come out because it was kind of supposed to be the smoking gun. Like what happened to the three hundred thousand dollars? Like. Why did they have this flush fund? The, the legislative, you know, affairs office is gonna is gonna figure it out, and then it gets delayed, and then and it's like, see, yeah, yeah, and then it's out of you know it's in the ether now, and nobody's paying attention to it, and it's just another cog in the whole machine of cover up and lies and everything. But when you're in the slog of it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like a red flag. It's just kind of like. What is that? That looks suspicious. What's right about that? Um, there's a, yeah, there's, and so a, I, there's
0: a great moment in another movie, which is uh, Michael Mann's The Insider, who is a film that is going to get mentioned as a great journalism movie because there's a moment where Al Pacino's Lowell Bergman is talking to a, a, a source at the FBI, and he goes, "You're making me two things, mad and curious," and <laughs> and 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 so there's um. There's a great, I actually might play it as the preamble to this scene because I love I love that exchange because that is exactly what the whole, uh, the tapestry of the, the environment that they're creating here is going, this is happening. They dumped it before the renomination. It's been squashed in all these other stories. We're going to continue to sh- shoot up a flare to it, but it's still not going to get the attention. And one of the fundamental things that we're concerned about is, That it is squashed, and but but like you said, it's like that important thing of going. If we continue to build the whole ecosystem that is around it, it will like it it incentivizes that. Why are we still curious? Well, we're still curious because the head of finance for Nixon picked up the phone and asked someone to do something that is drastically against um their their role their remit and a against his remit it's outside of what he should be doing and he's flexing on something that basically he knows is only to make the president look better
1: yeah yeah exactly and you just you hope people are reading it you hope people are paying attention you know you're going to keep doing the background work and you're going to keep putting articles out and hopefully something breaks and you get to talk to the right person and then people start paying attention and that is the gist of investigative reporting, right? Is that you you have to just keep slogging through it, and Robin, but it's
0: funny, I, Robin. As you, yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something here that I do sometimes, which is say, I think we should wrap this up because on, okay. on but I'll do this with a promise. I've loved having a chat with you. We're gonna talk again. <laughs> Before this thing's over, oh, okay. um, I think uh, um, if 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 you'll let me harass you and strong arm you back onto the podcast. But I think what's so important <laughs> about this minute and what I want to leave people with is two things. One is the essence of investigative reporting, being that you know really starting to sniff out those things that f- not only are wrong but sound and feel wrong, and paint the picture of how wrong something is, and a gesture from that branch. And digging into those motivations is is exactly what this minute is all about, and I think something that we all feel deeply. And I want to quote you directly: "It's like you can't be in the moment, um, uh, 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 you can't be in the moment because you're witnessing the moment." Um, I just think that that is such a 2020 feeling. You can't be in the moment because you're witnessing it, and and this mo- this moment in the film is exactly that. It's like you can't be in the moment because you're witnessing the moment. So uh, I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of the show and it's a real treat to talk to you. And I, I, am, I, am, I am deeply uh, um, um, uh, deeply grateful for your strong arming to come onto the show because I've, I've had a, a great time t- talking to you. Uh,
1: thank you so much really for having me. This was so much fun. It, it's honestly my favorite topic to, to talk about my, my career. I love it. And I want other people to love it too.
0: That was my wonderful guest, Robin Epley. You can find her on Twitter at... By Robin, R-O-B-I-N-E-P-L-E-Y. She is wonderful. As I said, she's the editor of the Mendocino Beacon and the uh, Fort Bragg Advocate, which you can find in her Twitter bio on Twitter. She's also half of Drunk Austin. As I said, Drunk underscore Austin, awesome, which is awesome and a Pulitzer nominated journo man so many great guests on this show so many great episodes this week thank you all for your support and listening it is a banger of a week next week thank you for following this far but we are less than an hour to go as we break into next week holy shimole do not miss it follow along at at pm pod or follow me directly at one blake minute on twitter oneheatminute.com and one heat minute productions wherever you find your podcasts thank you for listening Have a great weekend. We'll
1: catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes next week.